Right. Let us begin. First of all, I want to thank everyone for coming along tonight. You'll have to temporarily excuse the sound of my air conditioner gurgling in the background. Hopefully it's not too noticeable and it should disappear in a minute or two. So, the topic of tonight's class is a second part of a four-part series that I've conceived of to solve a particularly insidious and severe problem in kink. And that is, there seems to be some education that exists of reasonable quality on how to do certain things and perform certain activities and how to have certain skills and to learn them. But almost nothing seems to actually exist on the topic of how to have a healthy, well-structured mutually satisfying kink relationship, or at least a relationship that involves kink or DS. I did think as I was going through my notes just before this class that I do need to come up with like a little addendum to modify what I'm going to say tonight for people who are in erotic hypnosis relationships or relationships that involve that. So I will record a separate episode of this and kind of slot it into the series. So for now, you don't really have to do anything. Just relax and listen and learn. And of course, all the recordings will be made available on the podcast and in the resources folder. So if you have to drop out at any point, please feel free to. No stress at all. So, a high-level overview. It's a four-part series. Part one is preparing yourself to be in a really good place for a relationship. Part two is this part. It's the actual how to design the relationship. Part three is the how to actually have a relationship part. So all the things that you'll do together, how you'll handle conflicts. And then part four, I'm envisioning as a kind of unified, frequently asked questions section, plus troubleshooting and pitfalls for all of the three previous sections. So with that in mind, the purpose of this class is very, very clear. The purpose of this class is to create beautiful relationships. Relationships of intensity and meaning where if you've ever been at an event and you've just looked across the room and you can see how there are so many people that are there and then of that group there are a subset of people that are really there and present and not just going through the motions. And every so often your eyes will move across someone who is just completely in synchronicity with someone else who is there. And it's, it's like this golden webwork connects them. And you can see the threads that bind these people together from the way they look at each other, from the way they touch each other, from the way they are so instinctively, unconsciously in connection with each other. And that's what I want you to have. I want you to have a relationship that is beautiful, that is intense, as intense as you want it to be. And we'll be talking about some fairly intense topics tonight, so that's all on the table. I'm a very big believer that there's no topic that should ever be forbidden to be discussed. Everything should be able to be talked about. So that's a, a principle that's echoed and reflected in a similar way throughout my designs for an ideal relationship. So the purpose of this class is to create beautiful relationships for you. The intention of this class is to communicate to you a simple, extremely effective and scalable process by which you can create, design and build amazing, intense, extremely mutually satisfying kink relationships. And that emphasis on that word mutually is important because we'll address shortly some of the common pitfalls and traps. 
I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about how consent is done and how that's done. There are different classes for that, and I'm putting together my own resources of superior quality, which I will release when they're done. I'm going to talk about only the important things right? and all of the important things that I can mention. So the class may go over time, which is fine. You can just disconnect and you can tune back in to the podcast when the episode comes out there. So this this section is broken down into three phases. So this is the class on actually designing the relationship, and it's in three sections. The first section is prerequisites, the things that you need to know and the things that you need to be in order to have a fulfilling relationship. I covered basically all of these in the last class, but there's a few little extra ones, and it's kind of a quick refresher. The second section will cover how to design your ideal kink partner. So there's a structured process that I've come up with. I'm really proud of this, actually. It's very original. Well, not going to be very original, but you know what I mean. Original. Um, and there's some particularly clever tools that I've come up with for helping people get past sticking points in the design process, which are really, really cool. I'm really proud of those. This is actually a subset of a different system that I teach that is larger and more complicated um, I have taken out the parts that are relevant to designing your ideal relationship and I have moved them here and then simplified them so to make them as accessible for people as possible. Never underestimate, to the educators listening particularly, how important it is for your material to be accessible, not just to different kinds of people, to be as accessible to people of time and motivation as well. I am a huge proponent of simple tools used effectively rather than complicated frameworks which everyone looks at, flips through, and then literally never, ever, ever thinks of again. Those things are worse than useless. So this is a very simple process. Simple tools, easy to apply, key milestones will be highlighted so you know exactly when you're doing it right and exactly when you're to move on to the next part. That's part two of today's class. Part three of today's class will be an introduction to improvements that I've made to how to actually structure a relationship. So there'll be a bunch of different concepts involved there, but the main one is this concept of BDSM Contracts 2.5. I do have a previous episode on the BDSM Contracts 2.0 concept, um, but I've made some small but quite significant structural improvements and evolutions to that as well. So I'll explain that in more detail. I'll give you the summarized version. The original episode, a couple of people have told me, is very long and it repeats itself multiple times. I'm working on re-recording that in a more simple and accessible form. So, now that I've covered the basic structure, let me give you a summary of the overall process. So, let's have a look at my notes here. So, the other thing that's important to cover before we get into that is that people are going to do this anyway. People are going to create relationships. They're going to have intense connections. They're going to want some of the things that I will talk about towards the end of the class. I think it's very important not to teach abstinence, but to teach safe a technique, because they're going to do it regardless of whether you teach them to do it safely or not. So my perspective is that morally the correct action is to teach people how to do it safely, and particularly to emphasize subject agency and both parties having an active role in whatever experiences they're creating together. Um, this is sort of translated across from hypno-kink, where there's a very strong perception, at least inherent, if not explicit, that basically states that 
the hypnotist is responsible for everything and the you know the subject is a totally passive observer and they can't do anything or resist in any way or they're not responsible for anything that happens that's a not entirely correct and that's not the topic we'll talk about today but I do believe that the most intense kink relationships are the ones where an experience is offered freely and with enthusiasm. And we'll talk more about the importance of enthusiasm in sex in part three, which is the next class, not this one. But there is a kind of cap that's imposed by only one person being enthusiastic about something and the other person just kind of going along with it. Um... So it's really important, I think, for both people to be enthusiastic to some degree about what they're doing. Right. Now, what prompted this class was I have a lot of female friends and for the last several months I've basically been helping them start and end and enjoy extremely intense relationships. And I noticed I was giving the same sorts of advice over and over again and you know, I thought I might as well write all this down so that other people can benefit from that. But the purpose of all of this is basically to create fairy tale magic. So what I want you to have are a relationship that feels at once too good to be true, but also simultaneously exactly what you need, want, and deserve. I want you to wake up in the morning next to this person and look at them and think, How on earth are you real? How is this real? Because I've had that experience. And it's pretty fucking amazing. You know, I've been absolutely lucky to have met and dated and been partnered with some truly extraordinary people in my life. And those are the kinds of experiences that I want you to have. I don't want you to meet the right person and then do the wrong things and let that opportunity slip past you. You know, let that magic fade, so to speak. I want you to have magical fairy tale experiences. And the way that you get that is through good design. A really simple summary is basically prepare yourself for a great relationship, design your ideal partner, create space in your life for that person to meet you and connect with you, attract your ideal partner, and then basically engage in a kind of structured relationship where you're both very explicit about your boundaries, you both create an atmosphere of safety, of complete acceptance. I'm particularly good at that, so a lot of people have mentioned that I should emphasize how important that is because they were worried that it might be something that I kind of gloss over because of how naturally it comes to me, but it is very important. The standard for my relationships and the standard I encourage you to adopt in yours, even if it's a high standard, to strive towards this is the standard of the other person always being able to talk about whatever they need or want to talk about with you. Total openness. No topic should ever be off the table for discussion. You don't have to agree on everything, and it's totally okay if you don't. But I think the ideal relationship involves a strong element of being able to talk about whatever is on your mind both without taking responsibility for someone else's problems, which is a core element of independence, which we'll talk about in a moment, but also without feeling like you have to censor yourself. And there's a a topic called nice guy-ishness that we'll address in this class as well. I have to make a note here to remind myself to actually cover that. Actually, let's make sure I cover that. Nice guy-ishness. 
So, step one is understanding the overall process. Step two is completing a vision page or a template that describes what it is you're looking for in a partner. And then step three is maximizing your attractiveness and beginning with really good quality raw material in a partner. Then dating them, then short trial contracts with a definite time expiration, and then longer term agreements cycling through these over a period of time. So basically, being in a relationship that is DS for a period of time, then taking a break from the DS or staying in a relationship with them, and then switching the DS back on again. This is to stop something called hedonistic adaption, where basically you get so used to... So what prompted this part? <clears throat> All of this class is informed from my own personal experiences well, and the research I've done and the hundreds of people I've specifically sought out to talk to about this topic is that I was in a very, very intense DS relationship for many years where the level of control I was exerting over this person was both effortless and extremely invasive. And after a while, if something is present all the time, it, it genuinely starts to become boring. People need some variability in that in order for it to stay fresh. And so I realized the solution was basically cycle on the relationship for, say, four months and then cycle off the relationship for a month, long enough that you know things reset back to normal, and then we could dive back into it again deeper with each successive cycle. A lot of people don't like this idea. Those people, in my opinion, are wrong. Um, and those people, I think, when I've interviewed them, both formally and informally, have basically said, well, you know, yes, our relationship is not as intense as it used to be, but, you know, that's normal, isn't it? I'm like, well, actually, it doesn't have to be like that. There's lots of techniques that I've developed to fix that problem, but we'll talk about that more in the third episode in this fourth part series, the actual having of the relationship. So a rough timeline for key milestones, one of the things I noticed was missing from the tiny amount of material that did exist was there's no, like, how do I know if I'm doing this right? There's no timeline for what is kind of expected or correct. Now, to some degree... A blanket timeline is not going to apply to everyone, right? I can give you two examples where I, I met a girl on the internet and we spoke on the phone maybe two or three hours every fortnight for almost a year before meeting in person. So, you know, the time from getting to know someone to actually taking them to bed was substantially longer than I would ever recommend anybody else really do. And I'll talk about some of the pitfalls of long-distance relationships because that's relevant to today's topic, but later on in today. So key milestones are basically meeting that person, going on a date with that person, having a scene with that person, and not all of these will uh, occur in the same order, but it's just good to sort of have a benchmark for measuring your progress towards a longer-term relationship. Um first scene with that person, first time they spend the night, you know, pretty conventional stuff like, you know, meeting your friends, they might meet your friends, they might not to, might not, they might want to meet your friends, they might not want to. Um, but one of the most important milestones is actually the first argument that you have, the first genuine real disagreement that you have together. That is a very important moment how she handles that and how you handle her handling that will determine whether the relationship is viable or inviable. So from first meeting to first date, you want something like that's less than two weeks. Right? 
from first date to first scene, again, less than a month would be ideal, right? If someone is kind of stringing you along and cancelling on you a lot last minute and it's been multiple weeks since you last made plans, move on to someone who deserves your attention because she doesn't. I genuinely, and this is a bit of a point where I differ with a lot of other people um, who I've spoken to about this timeline because, of course, I road test everything pretty extensively before I present it. Um, I think that most people shouldn't even entertain the idea of being in a DS relationship for the first six to eight months of knowing someone. The reason for that is that they are much more energy and resource intensive. They're usually more emotionally and sexually intensive as well and intensive they require both well they demand a high degree of intensity and they require a greater degree of commitment of resources than a normal relationship would be um, but basically over time there's sort of an accumulation of emotional and sexual scar tissue so to speak that comes from people getting really intense about something and then it you know failing because of them not thinking this through not planning it out properly basically so for the timeline of like when should you get into a DS relationship with someone, I honestly suggest that you should date them, have scenes, fuck their brains out, spend the night, be a good girl or a good boy or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or whatever, for at least six, but preferably eight months before you consider a contract that is formal or some sort of long-term commitment to each other. Basically, you want to play around and have fun and enjoy each other before locking things down and suffocating the relationship with arbitrary rules that don't matter to anybody except the two of you, but often sometimes are designed based on what people think other people in the community is expecting of them. So one of the problems that I've seen there is basically people come into this and they choose an orientation and that orientation is kind of fixed and that influence what people think they should want. And I've seen a lot of guys lock themselves very strictly into a dom slash caregiver role, which, depending on how they do it and the sorts of person that they are, can really set themselves up to be taken advantage of in a lot of different ways. One of the traps and pitfalls of dating in a kinky or a DS sense is that there are a lot of submissive women out there with a lot of problems. And one of the implicit assumptions they will have is that if you were their dom, all of a sudden their problems are now your problems, which is why independence is so important. And we'll re-emphasize this in part one of today's class. So that's another problem that can happen as well. But softening that initial crazy lust period by six to eight months allows you to have the time to do fun things together, to play around with roles in bed, right? To enjoy being fun and and laughing together and going on dates and and not just like oh you like flogging I like being flogged this is the only thing we are allowed to do now and if you don't want to do this anymore we have nothing I'm like that's I don't, I don't see that being a pathway for a lot of people to be truly happy and fulfilled in a relationship you have a limited amount of time love is infinite right time as a very wise woman much wiser than me told me recently is not you can love dozens of people at once, but you can't spend time with all of them at the same time. So you need to be, be selective and prioritize the people that you're going to have long-term, meaningful, and mutually fulfilling relationships with. Choose carefully. 
sort. I would strongly advise people, in summary, not to engage in a formal DS relationship for at least six, but preferably eight months. I think that engaging in power exchange in the bedroom for the purposes of a scene, and if you want more details on that, there's a PDF in my resources folder called Eight Questions for Better Sex, I think it is. Um, that's very good. It's basically how you plan out a scene. Right? And, and how you plan out a scene is a microcosm of how you plan out a relationship. And how you plan out a relationship is a microcosm of how you plan out a full-blown DS dynamic. So, yes, don't jump into these things. And I know a lot of people say that when they're talking about, you know, just general do's and don'ts, but I am strongly against the idea of a formal contract before the six to eight month period. I think that people need a chance to grow, a chance to laugh together, a chance to go on first dates and second dates and third dates, a chance to fall in love, and a chance to work through whether they are deeply compatible before they find themselves in a committed DS relationship that can become extremely intense. Now, the prerequisites section is basically broken up into two smaller parts. There is prerequisite knowledge that I think you need to have and then there is personal prerequisites. So prerequisite knowledge, there's something that I came up with called the iron law of relationships. Right? And this is called the iron law, and it's original concept. I'm really quite proud of this one because I've tested it against everything that's been thrown at me and everything I've seen and heard, and it's always 100% true. And the iron laws of relationships is that if you are not happy without her in your life, then you cannot be happy with her in your life. If you can't be happy without her in your life, you cannot be truly, profoundly happy with her in your life. Now, the reason for that is that you only ever have indirect control over the person you're in a relationship with. And so there's always some possibility, no matter how small, that they will just leave. And if they are the source of all of your happiness and they leave, then no more happiness. The reason this is a problem is that if this is present unconsciously over time, you will start to become more and more risk adverse. You will start to do less and less things for fear of angering them, displeasing them, driving them away, whether they're the dominant partner or the submissive partner. It's tough. There's there's this concept that I I read about which inspired this part. And that was that it's actually easier to be completely honest with a total stranger that you will never see again about deep and invasive personal matters than it is for you to be honest with your closest friends, which seems really counterintuitive. But the reasoning behind this statement, this rather bold statement, is that if a stranger doesn't like you, then there's no consequences. But if you tell your best friend of 20 years something which they may not be able to understand or accept, there's the risk they might walk out of your life and you'll lose that friendship. What's at risk is a fantastic question to analyze and understand problems in a relationship. I definitely recommend writing that one down. But you need to be able to be happy in yourself 
before you can be truly happy with somebody else. The reason for this is that relationships don't really add anything to your life. They do sometimes allow you to do more of certain things or they open up new opportunities, but they don't really add anything fundamentally new to your life. What they do is they magnify what is already present. If you're an unhappy person who hasn't got their life in order yet, and you meet an amazing girl who is perfect in every way, right? I'm speaking from experience here, right? and you don't have your life together, all that relationship will do is magnify your insecurities, your problems, your deficiencies, and the relationship will inevitably be unproductive, unhappy, and in all likelihood end. Right? The relationship doesn't add anything new to your life. It magnifies what is already there. This is the importance of, inter of independence before interdependence, which is why I talk about it in extreme length and detail in our previous um, episode on this topic. So check out part one of this four-part series for that. Just very briefly, there are four dimensions of independence. So there's physical, which means that you can navigate the world, get around, house yourself, clothe yourself, feed yourself. There is financial, which means that you can generate enough of an income without relying on anyone in particular, any one person in particular, to feed, clothe, and house yourself, if necessary. Even if you're not currently doing it at the moment. Like if you're a housewife and you're living with your husband, and he's paying for all the bills and you're being a good stay-at-home mom, that's fantastic. But it's also really important to not be financially dependent on someone, to have savings sufficient that you can leave if you need to, and that you can start your own life independent of that person. I'm a big advocate of having separate bank accounts, but shared expenses. So if you're in a long-term relationship with someone and you live with them, I think it's very fair to split the expenses of the house based on usage. So, you know, 50-50 would be a good place to start. But also, I don't believe in having shared bank accounts. It just opens up so many... I don't want to say plot holes, but it opens up so many problems between people. Um, money and sex are two, if not the two biggest causes of long-term relationship issues and we're going to address both of those and the first one is finances it's quite easy you have your stuff and you pay your part of the bills and the financial expenditures of maintaining the household on the lifestyle that you lead and she pays for her part of it and at no point do you have shared bank accounts i am going to do another podcast episode on financial management structures for multi-partner poly ds households because that's a topic i have a huge amount of experience in but that's a pretty good summary so far. Now, iron law of relationships, right? otherwise known as no one can love you more than you love yourself. How much you actually love yourself imposes a, an upper limit on how much you can allow yourself to receive love from other people. So no one can ever love you more than you love yourself, which is why it's absolutely critical that you have a high sense of deservedness, which is what I talked about in part one of this uh, course. And I also outline a bunch of strategies for how to get there. Of course, if you have any questions on anything at all at any point, just send me an email. The website is thewordsmithspeaks.com. So four dimensions of independence, physical, financial. Now, the other two the ones that people talk about less commonly, are emotional. So you need to have a, at least three good friends that you can tell anything to and not be relying on your sexual partner or your intimate partner for the sole source of your support. Now, 
the other one of course is sexual and I outline how to address all of these in the previous episode the personal prerequisites required before you can design a good relationship are independence as defined in, in part one of this four part series ideally you want an abundance mentality um, and the way to get this if you don't currently have it is therapy um, it's also very useful to do some work on jealousy and envy. I have a podcast episode on jealousy. It's got jealousy in the title, so just search for that. And our upcoming episode is coming out on envy, which is a bit more of a complex topic, but I, um, I've been developing some really effective strategies for dealing with that too. Now, I believe that a required prerequisite for a healthy kink or vanilla relationship is that both participants are mentally and physically and sexually and financially healthy, independent of one another. Um, I think the minimum standard is someone who is independent in all four of those areas. Because if you, an independent person, try to get into a relationship with someone who is dependent, the relationship will become a dependency. And if you are both dependent on each other, you will experience the special kind of personal hell that is codependent where you both are not independent, you both need each other to be happy, and they need each other in order for you to be happy, and that will just spiral out of control until it becomes a fucking nightmare. It's horrible. If you have one of those, message me, I'll help you get out of it. But it's, it's, you know, it's tough to be in that situation. What you want is a strong foundation. Independence, physical and mental health are very, very important. So... skip this section here we've got common traps later on right let's talk about the actual meat and potatoes of today's class because I feel like I've meandered a little bit too much on this uh, stuff that we basically covered in the last episode so designing your ideal partner is a very very simple process I want you to take a piece of paper and divide it into four boxes so draw a line down the middle of the page and draw a line down the you know left to right of the page as well and four equally sized boxes um, in fact, what I will do once I've finished preparing my final notes for distribution with this podcast episode is show, distribute the template that I have for this exact process where a lot of the work has been already done for you and it's been filled out with something that is designed to create a healthy, positive, interdependent relationship, which is what you're looking for. That's where the real magic happens, interdependent relationships. When two parties are both independent of one another they have sufficient um, of all of those four categories to meet their own personal needs, but then they have an excess of that which they can combine with each other to create something magical. That's what you're looking for, an interdependent DS relationship. The important thing to mention here, unfortunately, is that DS relationships, by their very nature, trend towards dependency and codependency. So proactive measures must be employed to prevent that from happening. It's not enough to be passively aware of it and just keep an eye on it. It requires proactive measures because the continuation and experiential element of the DS relationship naturally trends towards creating dependencies. So subject agency is very important. Proactive measures are very important. I'll outline those in part three. I know I'm sorry but confusing with the parts and the sections. Like, I don't really have a good way of defining that. But this is the third episode in a four-episode series and this is section two of three sections in this episode. I hope that makes sense. So, 
from top to bottom, left to right, it's physical, emotional, sexual in the bottom left corner, and then spiritual slash miscellaneous in the bottom right corner. And this template will have a bunch of things already pre-filled in for you, but what you're going to write down is basically what you're looking for in a partner. So, and the reason it's in this order is because you notice physical things first, before you notice emotional things, before you notice sexual things, before you notice everything else. Like it might be 10th date before you get around to talking about religion, for example. But by, if you try to put it at the start as something that's really, really important to you, you might spend weeks getting to know someone only to find out that they're a totally incompatible faith and they have no intention of compromising on this and they just can't. And you have wasted all this time, you've wasted their time and you're experiencing a lot of pain that you didn't need to. So you're going to filter people out based on the order that you're able to apply those filters in, which is physical. You can look at someone and tell a lot about them. Not entirely accurately all the time. You shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but you can tell whether they have the type of body that you like or that you're attracted to. If they meet that standard, then you move on to emotional filtering and then sexual filtering and then the other categories. What you want to do is basically fill in, in each of these four sections, the things that you absolutely have to have and really, really strongly want in your relationship. So physical, for example, you might need them to be a particular body type. So tall or short. Now, what I strongly advise you to do here is to write down the stuff that you absolutely need to have. These are the things that are required in a relationship for you to be happy. All right, so let me give you a quick example of how to do this exercise the wrong way. I was working with a class once, years and years ago, and there was a female dominant in that class. And what she was doing was writing down the things that she wanted her partner to do, but she was kind of getting halfway through the exercise. The long story short version is she wanted a six-figure earning, you know, Adonis-looking, super-jacked weightlifter guy who had basically no job somehow. So he had all of this free time to spend on her and who was an expert at manicures and pedicures and being fucked up the ass and who had no limits and wanted to travel the world with her and do whatever she wanted but also didn't want kids. And I'm like, a bunch of those things are all mutually contradictory. It's not very likely that you're going to find someone who has a huge income but also doesn't need to work. It's possible but it's more difficult. So I helped her to refine that. But basically, there are three core techniques in this. So the first is the attributes method. The second is the inversion technique. And the third is the ideal day. And I may actually think about recording a more strictly guided sort of work through at your own pace version of this exercise as an addendum to this class as a sort of a broad overview of the process. So the attributes method basically states, and I'm really proud of this one because I came up with it myself, that every single physical object in the world has attributes. And a lot of people, if you ask them to visualize what their ideal partner looks like, they won't have any idea. And that can be very, very confronting. Like, I just nothing coming up. They get flustered, they get confused and frustrated, they get very overwhelmed and depressed. Big problem, all right? So the solution to this is basically to understand that the real problem is not that you don't know what you want in a partner. The real problem is that you don't know how to find out what you want in a partner. This is the solution to that problem, which will then solve the first problem. So the attributes method is you break everything down into attributes. So your ideal partner has hair or no hair, 
that hair is a particular length or a particular color or a particular style, right? So you use a series of structured binary questions that are not really predefined, just kind of organic. But basically what you do is you, you get yourself into a trance or you close your eyes and you trust your unconscious mind. And you have someone ask you, so your ideal partner, are they tall or short? And you just say the very first thing that comes into your head and you write that down. You don't think about it, you don't question it, you just blurt it out, right? You phrase it as something or something, right? Binary questions. So someone is either tall, in which case they're usually taller than you, or short, in which case they're usually shorter than you, but they can't be tall and short, right? This was actually one of the problems that I had with this um, female dominant I was running through this exercise. She wanted a male partner who was simultaneously taller than her, but also someone who was shorter than her. And we eventually, I basically suggested to her that she could employ the strategic use of high heels to create this. But she somehow wanted him to be simultaneously barefoot, the two of them barefoot, simultaneously taller than her and shorter than her, which is not gonna work. So you basically ask yourself these questions. You think about hair length, hair color. Everything has an attribute, right? What, what skin color do they have? What kind of cultural background do they have? What kind of languages do they speak? What kinds of experiences do they enjoy doing, right? Are they an indoors person or an outdoors person? Are they a mountain climber or a couch potato? Are they fat? Are they skinny? Right? Are they overweight or are they athletic? You divide everything into binary choices and then you ask yourself which one of those things you prefer because that helps you to narrow everything down. Out of the infinite possibilities and permutations of a potential ideal partner, you're looking to create clarity here, right? So you might ask yourself, um, are they a man or a woman or both? Like, as in either, doesn't bother me, right? So you'll get an answer from your unconscious mind. Whatever that answer is, without filtering it, without judging yourself, and again, you can, you can ask yourself these questions. I'll put a list of them in the handouts, but just to get you started then you can create your own from the same structure, right? It'll be a fairly extensive list though, so hopefully that'll be of use to you. But I know that people prefer these things to be guided experiences. It can be tough to do this by yourself, but again, if you're struggling with any of this, just reach out to me and I'll, I'm happy to help you through it. So binary questions, guy or a girl, tall or short, you know, what color hair do they have? Now that's not an example of a binary question. And when it comes to the attributes method, there are three possible answers that your unconscious mind can give you. A clear yes, multiple answers that cycle between each other, or a no or an I can't find the answer, which is the same thing as a no, technically. So I'll teach you how to in interpret the answers. Let's use a simple example. Um, from my own personal experience, what color hair is the ideal hair of my ideal partner? And my unconscious mind immediately suggests a cycling loop of black hair, red hair, and blonde hair, right? And then I think about it for a moment, and there's strawberry blonde hair in there as well. And it just cycles through that list. It's not just black hair, which would be like a strong yes, and it's not just redheads, because I don't really mind what color the hair of my ideal partner is, right? That doesn't matter to me specifically, so long as it's any one of those options, they're all roughly equivalent to my unconscious mind. So I would write those things down, or I would write down all of the options that come up, right? Which basically means I don't really mind what hair color my partner has. No judgment, no self-judgment, no filtering, no self-censoring, nothing. Just write it down, don't think about it. 
you later on we will filter out the things that don't make sense but right now is not the time for that write down the ideal hair color of your ideal partner right now the third option is that nothing comes up and when nothing comes up it means that that really doesn't matter to you at all so it can basically be anything so it's like it doesn't matter whether they're bald to you or whether they have hair or whether it's long or short or shapes that's color okay the color so we're getting ahead of ourselves so if nothing comes up it means the color of their hair doesn't really matter to you right or you need to refine the specificity of the question until some answer does come up but if i ask myself how long is the hair on my ideal partner the answer comes up very clearly is always longer than shoulder length right very clear yes that's how you tell the difference between the different kinds of answers that can come up so in a very simple way you close your eyes you ask yourself the question and then you respond by writing down the answer without any kind of filtering or self judgment you work through the attributes of your partner tall short hair color length style like straight hair or curly hair or doesn't it matter to you you know what doesn't matter to me if my girlfriend has curly hair or straight hair doesn't really matter what color it is i don't even mind bright or attention grabbing colors no all of that is fine with me however it is very important to me that she has hair that is longer than shoulder length all right now all of these things are entirely arbitrary right everyone's attracted to different things and i'm not a big believer in shaming people for their personal preferences when it comes to what they're attracted to they're all a combination of your formative experiences and your own choices and and lifestyle so it's it's not something that you really have to worry about it is always your choice to act on those things though so you basically ask yourself a series of questions that are around each of these four categories so emotionally right is my partner calm and stable or a raging lunatic slash manic pixie dream girl okay or or maybe there's a spectrum of that and you want to figure out where your ideal partner would be on that spectrum so maybe it's 20% wild and crazy and spontaneous and 80% i know she's going to be there when i get home all right same with sex right are there things that are really important to me in bed sometimes sex is a very mutable category mutable where a lot of what happens with your ideal partner develops organically as a combination of the uniqueness of the two of you together the inversion technique is very useful if you're trying to find attributes and you can't you get stuck you can't get started right what you do is you write down the exact opposite of what you want now this is actually a really important point because later on we'll talk about the differences between inclusive versus exclusive negotiations and why i believe inclusive negotiations are massively superior for creating solid dependable and enjoyable sexual experiences right and then being in a relationship as well so what you do is you write down the opposite of what you want but let's say you're trying to figure out what kind of girl you want it's like well what do you want well i want someone who is well the opposite of what i want is someone who is depressed and sad all of the time so i write that down right and then i would just invert that so what is the opposite of someone who is depressed and sad someone who is positive and has a positive outlook on life and who is generally happy right now that might not be the perfect answer but what it does is it gives you a clue it moves you closer in the direction of your ideal answer right so write down all the things that you don't want in a partner for example a common one with women 
for many understandable reasons is they don't want to be cheated on, right? I mean, most people don't want to be cheated on, but that's a common conversation I have with women. It's a big concern of theirs. They invest a lot of time and a lot of precious lifetime into this relationship and they don't want to waste it. So their big concern is being cheated on, okay? What's the opposite of a person who cheats on you? Well, someone who talks to you about when they're feeling like they want to be unfaithful or someone who negotiates things or someone who is monogamous and faithful to you, right? That's the opposite. And that might not be something that you knew before because a lot of people are so fixated on what they don't want that they have absolutely no idea what they actually do want. So you use this. You write down a list of all the things that you don't want in a partner. You break it up into categories. You know, sexual, sorry, physical, emotional, sexual, and, um, and miscellaneous and other. You know, what physically don't you want? Well, I don't want to date a guy. You know, I just don't. So the opposite of that is a woman, right? I, I don't particularly want to date someone that's, I don't know, over a certain age. Okay, well, then my ideal partner is the opposite of that, right? If you don't know what you want... Write down what you don't want and then just invert that particular attribute to get a clue as to something that is more along the lines of what you do want. Right? Now, it might not be the perfect answer, but it will be an answer that is closer to what you do want. Then you can think about that more and then refine that as you go along. And again, you work through these categories in order because these are your filtering criteria. Right? You're going to be able to look at someone and filter them out physically sooner than you will be able to, to filter them out sexually or emotionally or spiritually you'll have to interact with them before you can filter them out emotionally. Right. Now, the inversion technique is used when you get stuck or you need to get started on a particular area. Another technique for fleshing out ideas is your ideal day or your worst day. So you write down your ideal day. So on your ideal day, in your ideal DS relationship, where does your partner wake up? Do they wake up in the bed next to you? Do they wake up collared in the bed next to you? Do they wake up on the floor of your bed? Do they wake up in a separate room? Do they wake up in a servant's quarters, upstairs or downstairs? Where do they wake up? And you walk yourself through your day. Where do you wake up? Are you waking up in the master bedroom or are you waking up under the stairs? Are you waking up in a separate bedroom where you have to listen to your owner fuck a hotter girl through the walls? Is that your ideal? And again, it's very, very important that you must not self-censor. You don't have to show anyone all of this. You can keep it to yourself and you're not obligated to act on it just because it exists in your mind. You have choice and agency, but you must not hide what you are and what you want from yourself. That's a horrible situation to be in, right? to deny what you are to yourself. So if you're struggling with your ideal day, write down your worst day. Okay, on the worst possible day, I wake up at the foot of my owner's bed and they don't love me. Okay, well, that tells me where I want to wake up. What's the opposite of on the foot of their bed? In bed next to them. Right, that'd be a good place to start. You know, I wake up unloved and unwanted. Okay, well, what's the opposite of that? Well, they wake me up with sex. Well, they wake me up with a cuddle. Or they wake me up with joy. They wake me up with something, right? It's what's the opposite of the thing that you don't want will give you clues towards what you do. Now, there's a very simple four-word four summary of what you want in an ideal partner. Healthy, happy, sexy, and wealthy, right? And those four areas ideally should align between the two of you with what you want, right? 
you should have ideally physical ideas around health and fitness that are in alignment. If she's a gym junkie and you're not, you won't have that in common. You might have other things in common, but it's best to have more compatibility with someone if you want them as your lifetime partner. Better to have more compatibility than less while you maintain your own independence at all times in that relationship. So your goal right, in, section, in this section is to attract mentally and physically healthy partners or partner or a partner who is also independent because you cannot build an interdependent, really intense, super awesome DS relationship with someone who is dependent on you. It's just not possible. So what I have generally found is rather than look extensively within the kink community, it's generally better to date normal mentally and physically healthy people and then do a bunch of rough sex in the bedroom and a bunch of awesome kink stuff that you both enjoy in the bedroom and then constrain that bedroom, the, the DS power exchange elements to the bedroom. Basically, date normal people who are healthy as fuck then have super rough sex where you're both happy and fulfilled and dom her in bed, but not outside of the bedroom. It's also important to remember here as well that DS relationships naturally trend towards dependency issues. Proactive measures are required to counteract this. One of the things that creates the largest impetus, forward movement towards negative dependencies in DS relationships is bringing that DS relationship outside of the bedroom as well as inside of the bedroom. The reason for that is a lot of men are tricked or manipulated or convinced or emotionally blackmailed into thinking they have to be super dommy alpha guys outside of the bedroom, that they have to control how she dresses and how she speaks and how she feels. And the unfortunate consequence of this is that it happens a lot more often than it generally needs to. But also that guys end up putting a shit ton of effort into something that doesn't actually benefit them in literally any way. Like, there would be no measurable difference, no observable difference in the happiness of either party if, you know, he wasn't choosing how she dresses every single day, if he wasn't waking up in the morning. So what happens here is a kind of insidious reversal of authority, where the relationship over time also trends to becoming, generally speaking, if not, if you don't initiate proactive measures to maintain your independence generally trends towards being more focused around the needs of the submissive, right? And there's a lot of different reasons for that, which would take a long time to explain, and I'll put them in a different podcast episode. But basically, the solution to this is to proactively maintain your independence, right? And I strongly encourage people, unless they are absolutely committed, it's very important for your partner, this is a sort of a note to all the Dom's guys out there, it's very important for your partner to be independent before you consider her for an intense DS relationship. Otherwise, it will naturally trend towards you being independent and her being dependent on you, which sounds fun in theory, but it's not. I can reassure you, it's absolutely not fun. And over time, you end up with a kind of scope creep where you're taking on responsibility for more and more of the problems in her life, which is why the core belief modules come in really there. That you're taking on more and more responsibility for problems in her life, but there's no actual benefit to you expending more energy and more care and more time trying to micromanage things that you don't have any direct control over and therefore shouldn't have any real responsible for, or responsibility for. So I generally think 
the six to eight month mark is a great place to formalize a DS sexual inside the bedroom in private relationship. But give it several more months before you seriously consider formalizing anything outside of the bedroom and then only do what is necessary to maintain the health of the relationship. Not the health of your partner, right? But the health of the relationship. Do the minimum required outside the bedroom to maintain the guidelines that make the relationship possible. Because the problem that I've seen from a lot of different people is basically, over time, the relationship tends to creep towards him taking on more and more and more responsibility and there being less and less and less motivation or reward or reinforcement involved in that. And eventually it hits a point where a lot of bitterness and resentment builds up, where it feels like he's doing everything for her basically all of the time. She's got a problem at work, now it's his problem to fix a problem at home now it's his problem to fix and while he's working his own job and trying to manage his own life he's also taking on the responsibility of living and caring for living someone else's life and caring for them when they should be themselves as a good submissive and again as a topic for an exploration at a later date be maintaining their independence in all four of those dimensions at all times proactively right I do not want a submissive who is financially dependent on me at the very barest minimum, she'd have, she should have the ability to leave me and the relationship at any time, financially. She should have enough of a, of a, of a buffer saved up, even if she's not working full-time, but that that is a possibility for her. Why? Because otherwise she's financially dependent on me. It impedes my decision-making. It impedes the quality of the decisions that I can make. And it massively negative, negatively impedes the, the intensity that is possible in the relationship. Because... If you have to be in the relationship, if it is necessary, then there are just certain things that you can't do and many, many more things that you can't do with the same intensity. And the goal of all of this is to maximize the intensity of what is possible, which means that you can't need that person at any given time. You can want them very, very much in a way that is functionally indistinguishable from need, but you can't actually need that person at any time. Otherwise, you're trending towards dependency. So when it comes to selecting partners for a relationship, it's also important to consider practical restraints. Now, there's a story that I've been waiting to tell for ages, and I'm really looking forward to telling you this one. It's about a time that I got absolutely shot the fuck down. So I was at a conference in Europe. I walked up to this girl, and she was chatting to someone else, and she's like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, fantastic. You know, this is your first time here. And she's like, no, no, no. Just basic boring questions. And she's like, I've heard about you. I know who you are. I've met you. Like, I've met friends who have met you. I've heard a lot about your reputation. I'd really love to play with you sometime. And, you know, the conversation progressed and we were talking about doing a scene together and then, you know. And something really interesting happened. She asked me about 15 minutes into the conversation when we were vibing really heavily, right? We were, like, making plans to do stuff later and it was all going fantastically well. And she asked me just kind of innocuously, and not with any malcontent or ill intent behind it, but she just asked me where I was living. So like, she's like, do you have residency in Europe at the moment? And I'm like, I wish that I could say that I did, but unfortunately I don't. And quite literally, in less than 20 seconds, she went from seriously considering me for a relationship partner to absolutely uninterested in talking to me at any point for the rest of the entire multiple day event. 
she's like, that's great. Um, you know, and then she just kind of wrapped the conversation up in a polite way and then wanted off and that there was no point in us talking or playing because I didn't have residency. And uh, actually, no, I think it was later on. I, I texted her a few days later and I was like, well, what's going on there? And I think she was like, well, if you don't live in Europe, there's no point in us pursuing anything. And I'm like, oh, that kind of stings a little bit. But then I thought about it some more and I thought, this girl is, is really onto something here, right? I've never been like so aggressively rejected by someone before. And I wanted to find out why. It was like, well, because... My, my theory is basically that she thought... Oh, excuse the air conditioner again. My theory is basically that she thought that there would be no point in having an amazing experience with me that would lead to nothing, right? She was looking for something else. She was looking for something that I couldn't realistically give to her unless I was, you know, a resident of mainland Europe. And so without missing a beat, without feeling any guilt or remorse, she was very polite about it. She was very mature and very adult. She wasn't cruel or selfish. She just immediately moved on to other people. And I thought, she's doing something that I would really struggle with personally, because I, I tend to like give people the benefit of the doubt far too much. And in, in the past, I've pursued people for relationships where I haven't thought practically about logistics. You know, how is this going to work when she barely speaks English and I definitely don't speak Swedish, right? Well, it's probably not going to work. So it's okay to think about logistics. It's okay to think about the practicality of these different things, right? Now, this is an important point to mention. There is essentially no benefit to men in any way in being in a relationship that is long distance only. The primary benefit to a, a man who is independent in all four of those dimensions is sexual and in the creation of a mutually enjoyable future that you would build together, as in children, or a family, or a project, or a life together in some way. It's, however, the opposite is not true. Uh, every single one of a woman's needs, besides the need for physical touch, can absolutely be satisfied just as easily over the phone as it is in real person, as it is in real life. And that need for touch, most women can satisfy that very easily as well. A couple of photographs in a flattering angle up on a dating app site, that dating website somewhere. And, you know, there are lots of people that are interested in that. Right? So it's very important to notice it's not a one-to-many or a one-to-one -one relationship. It's more like a one-directional relationship here. So it's extremely difficult, basically impossible. I would say essentially impossible. For a man to be fulfilled in the long term, sexually and emotionally and in terms of building a future with someone, if there is no physical component in a relationship, if it is entirely long term, or, sorry, long distance, and if it was going to always be long distance, I would say avoid that situation. Um, for a woman, it benefits her massively because she can have all of her needs for energy and emotion and time and attention met without ever, ever having to worry about meeting her sexual needs with that person and she can just meet them with somebody else it might not be the same but it's good enough for basically every woman that i've ever spoken to about this so what i advocate is unless there is a realistic possibility of the two of you spending a significant chunk of time in person as in multiple weeks alone or okay so 
moving into her house for two weeks while she's working from seven o'clock in the morning till seven o'clock at night as your time together is not time together. That doesn't count, right? What I would think of as time together is like when you can both take a couple of weeks off, ideally, and travel together and do stuff together in person. If you can't do that within three months of meeting someone, don't waste your time. Do not get sucked in, this is particularly for guys, do not get sucked into an online relationship. Don't simp for women online. Don't treat them like goddesses, treat them like people. They're normal people, right? But it's a preventative measure to avoid being sucked into a relationship where there is no possibility that you can ever benefit in a meaningful way. Because the primary benefit to a man who is fully independent in a relationship like that is sex, physical intimacy, companionship, and a mutual future. And those things require physical proximity. They require that you live together, spend a lot of time, or spend a lot of time physically in the same place. So if you can't have that within three months of meeting somebody, don't entertain the possibility of a relationship with that person. This is a lesson that I learned from that girl at that event. You know, super keen, super keen, super keen. Oh, what's that? You don't live in Europe? Cool. Send me a message when you live in Europe. And that was it. And she just moved on to the next person. And it was one of the most intelligent and emotionally emotionally evolved things I think I'd seen in a long time. Let's talk about something that's really, really important when it comes to designing your ideal partner. So in rough terms, and I'm obviously going to have to go through and document this exercise in more detail so that I can put those resources in the resources folder too. I like the idea of putting together like a a kind of walk along where I can kind of guide you through it step by step. This is more of an explanation rather than an actual, let's sit down with a pad of paper and fix this today. But the end goal of this is a one paragraph to one page worded description of your ideal partner that focuses on those four areas of physical, emotional, sexual, and other, and that contains no internal inconsistencies. So for example, if you're looking for a partner who is both tall and short, you cross both of those things out because kind of like an algebraic equation, they cancel each other out. That's the end goal. That's how you'll know you've done this part of the process perfectly. So you get to one sentence of description. Do not underestimate how important it is to just write anything of this down. Right? It's very, very important to get something on paper. Unless it's on paper, it's not real. So write down anything in any of those four categories. Right? Then go along and worry about reality filtering it later on. But what I want for you is a relationship of breathtaking intensity. Right? I want you to have amazing sex incredible sexual experiences, fantastic relationships that are mutually and satisfying in ways that you're not even capable of perceiving right now. And the reason that I want those things for you is because I've had those things and I have those things now. And I want that for you. It's sort of like, I don't know, not great at analogies a lot of the time, but you get the idea, right? So I'm going to have to tell you a couple of things now that are true, but that you might not like. Now, in order to attract and to be of sufficient standard for someone who is going to be mentally and physically healthy, I think there's a reasonable expectation that you yourself are also mentally and physically healthy. So let's talk about how to maximize your attractiveness as a woman. 
Now, there are three basics and a couple of extra rules when it comes to this stuff. So the basic rules are, don't be fat. Don't be a massive cunt to every single person that you meet. And the third thing is to put yourself in the path of people that you like and want to date, and then be a a modern woman and ask them if they want to date you. No one is, well, I don't think anyone should reasonably expect women to take a passive role in their own relationships, at least in the beginning of it. Absolutely later on, you can negotiate whatever you like, but I think women are just as capable of asking men out as men are of asking women out. It's perfectly okay to do that. So those are the three core things. Don't be fat. Don't be a cunt all the time. And show up. If you can do those three things, the quality of partner that you will will be able to attract is sufficiently higher to be worth the effort. I guarantee it. I want you to have intense, wonderful relationships. And that means with someone who is also independent, because what you're looking for is an interdependence. And so interdependent people, interdependent relationships, are the ones that you're looking for. And they require you being independent and of being and being of sufficient attractiveness to attract a high quality partner. Now, everyone's going to have their own interests. Some women really like tall guys. I've never understood that myself, but I get that it's a lot harder for shorter guys to date women that are taller than them. That's not fair, and I wish that wasn't the case. Right? But people do have preferences. What you can do is maximize your attractiveness to the people that you are attracted to. So what you'll end up with from the first part of this exercise is a list of attributes, physical, emotional, sexual, and other, of your ideal partner. They'll have maybe a certain color of hair or a certain length of hair. Maybe they'll be a certain kind of person or they'll be from a different ethnic or religious background. Whatever it is that you're looking for unconsciously. Then you have to think about what is of maximal attractiveness to that kind of person. And there's a bit of intuition involved in this. But generally speaking, those three primary rules hold true across every culture, every language barrier, and every other difference between peoples. So, don't be fat. Don't be a cunt to everyone. Let me translate for people in Europe. Don't just be horrible to every single person that you meet all of the time. You can be horrible to some people. You can get away with that. But you can't be horrible to everyone all of the time. Right? You'd be nice to some people sometimes. Um, if, if you're trying to attract a high-quality partner, and you do want a high-quality partner, you deserve one. Right? You deserve someone who lights up your whole fucking world. You deserve someone that you can fall asleep next to and feel safe and seen and hungry to spend time with. You deserve that. You deserve that kind of connection where... The two of you can hold hands in public, and it's more intimate for the two of you than most people would think of as fucking, right? It's like it's, you can look at someone across the room, and you just know what they're thinking, and they smile at you, and the whole world just stops spinning for half a moment, and it's just perfect. And you deserve that, which means that you want to date someone who is as attractive as you can possibly get, which means maximizing your attractiveness to that kind of person. So you have a list of the things that you're attracted to. Now you have to think about what that kind of person would be attracted to. 
So let's use a simple example. Let's take someone who is a very attractive woman with long hair, who is well-maintained. She had a good upbringing. Her father didn't beat her. Her mother wasn't an alcoholic. She's passionate about her fitness. She loves the outdoors. She has a great job that's trending towards a career, but she doesn't have to commit to a career, right? What kind of partner is this person going to want? They're going to want someone who is physically fit, funny, passionate, intelligent, driven, ambitious, probably sexually dominant, right? That's the kind of person that you need to focus on becoming and focus on maximizing those attributes in yourself. Now, I know it's hard to hear. I know, you know, personal happiness is absolutely within your control. And personal improvement is a bigger topic that's not really related to the topic of this podcast. But if you want more resources on that, just email me. But you deserve an amazing partner and an amazing relationship, which means maximizing your attractiveness so that you can secure the time and attention of an amazing partner. So a girl that is physically fit is likely to want a partner who is also in reasonably good, if not excellent, physical shape. They're likely to want someone who is passionate and driven. Think carefully about what your ideal partner would be attracted to. There are some things that you can't know. Like, for example, she might be a a six foot two blonde statuesque female model looking type who really enjoys playing video games. You don't know that, but you can kind of estimate what she's going to be interested in, and you can improve those elements of yourself to maximize your attractiveness to your partner. The most important thing, I think, besides those three primary ones, is to be feminine. And, most importantly of all, to love yourself. To love being a woman. And to be proud and happy to be a woman. I met a girl, this was a while ago now, and I like to use examples from my own life because you know, that way you know that it's real. I met this girl and there was just something about her. There, she was absolutely not my type physically, not my type, which is not an insult. She's just not my type. Now, she was a bit bigger. But there was something about this girl that just fixated me. I would say, like, to a mild obsessiveness. I just could not stop thinking about how attractive this girl was to me. And I thought about it for a while, and it took me a little while to puzzle it out, but it was just it was just that she was so happy being herself. She walked into a room, and the whole room just glowed, right? And it didn't have anything to do with how big she was. It had everything to do with how much she loved herself. And how proud she was to be a woman. To enjoy wearing pretty dresses and doing her hair nice and painting her nails. And she wasn't hiding anything. She wasn't in denial. She wasn't confused. She was just proud to be exactly what she was. And that is so incredibly attractive. Right? To men and women. There were a lot of other people in that room that were looking that girl up and down and thinking, that's what I want. So, if you are a woman, be feminine. Ignore the haters. Their opinions don't matter. You're out to build yourself a great relationship, which means being the kind of person that you've always wanted to be. Being happy, being proud of being a woman. 
No one should ever be allowed to shame you for being yourself. Right? Bearing that in mind, always work on yourself and always improve yourself so that you can be the best at what you are. So when it comes to maximizing sexual attractiveness for men, this is a bit more of a fuzzier topic because there are lots of things that women are attracted to in men and there are, comparatively speaking, less things that men are attracted to in women, generally. But sexual dominance is one of those things that women are very attracted to. They want someone who can take the lead in bed, who can give commands with firm authority, who can create an experience they are both an active participant in. There's a fantastic piece of advice that I read once, which is, which comes from a woman, actually. And she said, women want a man with a twinkle in his eye, but they do not want to be the reason for that twinkling. Women want a man a twinkle in his eye, but they do not want to be the reason for that twinkling. Women are very drawn to a man with passion and enthusiasm and ambition who is moving somewhere in life and going places. Pretty much the least attractive thing you can be as a man is not going anywhere. Even if you're going somewhere that most people wouldn't know of or wouldn't appreciate or even understand, that's more attractive than staying stuck in the same place. And women want a man with a twinkle in his eye, but they don't want to be the reason for that twinkle. Which is not to say that they're not willing to contribute to a relationship. It's just to say that they, at an unconscious level, don't want the whole relationship to be about them. So, this whole section is done mostly before you actually meet your partner. You take the template that I will publish at the end of this class... And then you add in, change around, remove the sections that you don't like until you have a written description of your ideal partner. Okay? Then you filter out people that are not part of that description. And I'll, I'll, I'll see about um, changing my actual description and putting that up as an example of what I'm looking for in a partner, as an example. And of course, if anyone wants to publish theirs, you can email them to me and I can put them in that list for as a resource, as an example for other people to look at as well. That'll all be in the resources folder. But you do most of this before you actually meet your partner because you have a pretty clear idea of what you want, right? Someone with longish hair who is physically active, has a positive attitude, loves life, wants kids, you know, speaks reasonable English. And then you filter out people that don't meet that criteria. And then obviously as you meet someone amazing, you can refine some of that criteria without breaking any of the rules that I talked about earlier. So, I hope that makes sense. So, moving on to the next section. Now, the most important thing to talk about here first is boundaries. Boundaries are a complicated topic for a lot of people to explain. We're going to do it very, very simply. Boundaries are a series of conditional statements that consist of an if-then structure. So, if X happens, then Y. And that's basically how you construct a boundary. So, if... She punches you in the face, then the relationship is over. If he sets your car on fire, then the relationship is over. I'm trying to think of some less extreme examples. Um, if she lies to you, 
then something may happen. Something may not happen. It depends on whether that's a boundary for you, right? But that's how you set up a boundary, right? Now, the thing that's important to understand when it comes to boundaries is that you have to feel free and safe enough in the relationship to actually exert your boundaries. So it's no use having an awareness of them yourself if you aren't able to actually exert them. And what's necessary for that to happen is for you, both of you, in the relationship to create an atmosphere of safety where both of you can talk about anything at all without any real negative consequences. Again, disagreeing on something is, a not, is not a negative consequence. Being actively and deliberately punished for bringing up a particular conversation topic is something that tends to inhibit the formation of trust in a relationship. So, the way that you improve this is you play something called the getting to know game. So getting to N-O, not K-N-O-W. And what you basically do is you set up a couple of example boundaries and you have this person do a bunch of basically harmless things to you until they violate a boundary, which may be previously, like previously expressed at the start of the exercise. Again, I will put all of this in a podcast episode and then publish this on the podcast in more detail. But basically, when that person crosses a boundary, the process is that you stop them verbally and clearly, no, then they thank you for communicating your boundary and your no, and then you are explicitly rewarded for communicating that boundary. So that's reinforcing the behavior modification, basically. So let's use a simple example. Um, You pick your partner and you sit him down And you basically, you know, he says, my boundary is touching my cock, right? And she's like, okay. So she touches his arms. He smiles and enjoys it. She touches his shoulders. He smiles and enjoys it. She kisses him. He smiles and enjoys it. She touches his cock. He says no. She thanks him for expressing his boundary and then reinforces that behavior in some way to make it more likely in future that he will feel safe and comfortable and happy enforcing a boundary. And you play this game basically as a kind of drop-in version of the three-minute game. So you, you play it basically by switching roles back and forth until you've built up a great degree of trust that if you ask your partner to stop, they will stop and that they won't hate you or punish you for it. Now, it's normal in the heat of the moment when things get quite intense to need a moment to calm down, right? Now, the other thing that's important here is just because you violate a boundary... It doesn't mean that things have to stop completely. This is a common, common mistake. But things do not have to grind to a halt just because you accidentally brushed the back of your hand against your left boob, right? What you do in this game is you get to the boundary, they say no, you thank them and reinforce that, and then they suggest something else that you could do of roughly equivalent sexual or emotional intensity for them. For example... Um, No, you can't touch my dick, but you can kiss me or snuggle up next to me or, you know, hold me in your arms or something. Something that keeps the, the movement, the flow back and forth between the two of you moving back and forth. The, the problem with a no is that women don't understand that there are multiple layers to a no. So a no is not interpreted by a man as a in, in the correct way, he interprets it in this way. No, not right now, not ever again, not in this place, and not with you. And 
most men, the, the vast majority of men, are very attentive to when they receive an actual no. And again, not reluctance or a slight hesitation or a whimper that could be very ambiguously interpreted, an actual out loud verbal no. Now, I know that it can be hard to express these things to someone, but that's why we're practicing doing it because of how important it is. Right? And this is, this is the first skill that I teach every single person that I ever play with, talk to, or even seriously consider dating. That's that important. You have to be able to trust that they will say no to you when they don't want something to happen. Because if they, if they can't say no to you, they can't really say yes to anything that does happen. They are effectively a child, and they cannot be relied upon to be responsible for their actions. And which basically means that you can't really play with them. You can, but anything you do with them, you take on an absolutely enormous personal risk. And they take on no risk at all. So, you play this game back and forth in the same structure that you would for the three-minute game. And again, episodes on this are upcoming. But you go back and forth, you work to the point where you feel comfortable and safe that if you said no, they would stop, they would thank you genuinely and sincerely for that no, and then you could suggest an alternative behavior that kept everything moving. Right? Again, the biggest mistake people make is they think that a no means never again, never anywhere, never with you. What it actually means is not right now, or not here, or not with you. And so it's really helpful when someone gives you a no to ask them what part of it is the actual no. And then you have to explain to the woman that there are multiple components to the no. So maybe it's never with you ever. Maybe it's not in public, but when we get home, absolutely. Maybe it's not right now, try again later. What happens over time that's a real problem is guys will initiate things and the girl will occasionally say no. And the guy will burn this into his fucking mind that he's never allowed to ask for this ever again. And because there is a finite number of things you can realistically do with your partner, over time, men either initiate less and less often, or they stick to things they know will be received well, which means that your sex life gets really, really boring and stale. You know, he wants to force your mouth down over his cock in the car when you guys are parked late at night in a private place, and one time you said no when he tried it. So in his mind, that means never, ever ask again. And what she actually meant was, not right now, I need to pee. Can we go inside? But she didn't say that. So it needs to be either not right now or not here or not with you. Or he has to ask her what to clarify. So which he understands which one of those elements is missing so that her no has to be respected. right? Because when someone who is receptive to an act says no, it doesn't actually mean never again, never with you, never anywhere. It just means not right now, or not here, or not with you. Ask and clarify which one of those things it is, and you'll avoid, you know, over time, the intensity and variety and the diversity of the sexual behaviors in your relationship being clicked off one by one, until there's basically nothing left that you feel confident actually doing. Now, the reason it's really, really important that she's able to say no is because that's the foundation of everything that you will build on top of this. If she can't say no, then she can't say yes, which is why it's important that you proactively teach her how to say no. You reward and reinforce her for not necessarily saying no to you, as a lot of other educators have pointed out. You know, they think that you're rewarding her for saying no to you. No, 
You're rewarding her for communicating a boundary. That's what you're doing. That's why it's important. So that's a little game that you can play near the start of your relationship, which I strongly advise people to play, so that you can clarify that she'll respect your boundaries and that he'll respect your boundaries. And then you can both fall much more deeply into the experiences that you share. Now, there's a really handy PDF, which I will attach to the notes of this episode, called The Relationship Escalator. And this is really handy for helping you to elicit the kinds of things you would like to have in a relationship with this person, because it's very different from everybody, for everybody. Some people you might want to marry. Some people you might not want to marry. Some people you might want kids with them. Some people you might not want kids with them. It gives you a little template, a little framework to help you to map out the kinds of things that you do want with them so that they can have a clear idea of the things that you like, the things you want. Now, designing the actual relationship. So we've we've finished designing our ideal partner. We have secured someone who we are willing to consider being in a relationship with. What you want to do is a mini contract. So a mini contract is a super, super, super simple contract where you basically agree to follow a couple of little rules for a very short period of time, right? And in the sense, the three-minute game is a kind of even more scaled-down version of this because you're making a contract that for three minutes, I will do this to you, and you will tell me if you don't like it. And then we'll flip it around and go back and forth and that kind of thing. So it's just a scaled-up version of that. So when I was doing this, I would basically have a contract that went for an hour. And it would be something along the lines of, you know, you'll serve me in these specific ways for an hour. Now, this is a really important part where we get to talk about inclusive versus exclusive negotiation. Now, out of everything that you learn in this class, this is possibly the most generally applicable and generally useful thing. So when it comes to this, pay attention. The vast and overwhelming majority of people do this the exact wrong way. And it's fucking stupid and it ruins any kind of fun they might be able to have with somebody. It's usually the submissives that do this. They walk into an interaction with someone. Let's say they found a a play partner at a party and they really want to have a scene with this person and they don't know what they want. So what they do is they open up with both barrels to the face of... Here's a bunch of stuff that I don't want. And I'm sure if you've spent more than five minutes on FetLife, you will be familiar with everybody basically having, roughly speaking, the same quote-unquote hard limits. Now, I don't believe... I believe that people have the right to have boundaries, but I don't believe soft limits and hard limits really exist. I believe that everything is contextual and that under certain contexts, people can and would and would enjoy doing things they would never countenance under a different context. So I don't tend to fixate on hard limits, but I'll use them as a simple example here. What a lot of submissives will do is they will open a negotiation with, here's a list of my hard limits. Blood and poop and bestiality and bringing in children and you know being hung upside down from the ceiling by my ankles and flayed alive. These are all things that are hard limits of mine. Super bad, I don't wanna do them, right? That's fucking useless, totally useless, right? You can see how it relates to what we were talking about before with the inversion technique. If you write down what you don't want, well, you have a really great idea of what you don't want, but that doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what you actually would enjoy. So this is an exclusive negotiation where you write down a bunch of things and you swap lists, you know, like I've ever seen anybody actually do that, about what you don't want to happen. And what this does is it tells you a great deal about what you don't want to happen It doesn't tell you anything about what you'd actually enjoy doing with this person. 
So, what you do is the exact opposite of what everybody else does. What you do is you write down the list of things that you want to only have happen, right? So, rather than write an enormous, complex, 55-page list about all the things that you enjoyed one time with someone different, just look at this person across from you, right? And write down all the things that you want to do with them, right? And then have them write down all the things that they want to do with you. And then swap the lists at the same time. Right? The reason for this is that, and it can be hard to be vulnerable with someone like this. I really do understand that it can be. That's why independence is really important because if you're emotionally independent, you won't care so much about what other people think of you. If you're sexually independent, you won't be cutting off pieces of yourself to try to fit what you think a guy might like in you, right? There was a girl I was speaking to recently and she's like, I don't even know who I am because my whole life, she's almost 30, but her whole life has been the hot girl and just doing whatever her boyfriends wanted her to be, being whatever her boyfriend wanted her to be. She has no idea, almost no idea who she really is. You know, it's like, well, that's just horrible. It's tragic. But focus on what you do want. Write down what you don't want and then become independent. Focus on this. Go back to the first episode in this series. Work through the exercises there. Because that will allow you to be independent and care dramatically less about what people might say if you told them about your deep and intensive fetish of role-playing being a boar in the forest hunted by Aphrodite, right? No, Artemis, sorry. Totally different Greek goddess, my bad. Although Aphrodite was pretty vicious too. So it can be hard, which is why you build the trust with the getting to know exercise, right? It's why you build the rapport by playing the three-minute game. Right? You suggest a simple activity, you play this, it's a hyper-accelerated rapport builder. Then you work on yourself to the point where you feel comfortable having conversations about things that, that are sometimes hard to be vulnerable about. Right? Now, I talk about this where it's easier for people to write things down on paper and then to... And so it's in, in order of difficulty, it's write things down on paper as the easiest write things down on paper and then say them out loud to yourself and no one else as the next hardest, and then write things down on paper and then share them with a friend by speaking them out loud to someone that you don't know will approve of them, that's kind of the hardest thing. So if you're struggling with that, write it down on a piece of paper and literally just swap the paper with theirs. Now, the issue is that this is only a subset of what a lot of the time there's an unconscious projection at work here. So, for example, you might look at someone and think, this person is only going to be interested in certain activities, so I shouldn't offer activities that I don't know if I like them. So you kind of unconsciously filter yourself, and that's not what I want you to do. So the solution to this particular problem is to create a menu, right? So a menu is kind of like a resume. And I was thinking about this in terms of like a job interview because... While people do get very emotionally invested in a particular job or a particular position, it doesn't usually break their heart if they don't get the job. They usually just go on and work for a different company in the same position. And you take that same, same philosophy, that same dispassionateness, and you apply it here. 
where if you pitch yourself to a girl and she doesn't love every single thing about you, it's not the end of the world. Right? But what a menu does is it gives her a sample platter of what you can do, what you can do, what you're willing to do with basically everybody. Right? So there are two different ways you can use this. The simplest way is to write down a list, literally on an A4 piece of paper, of the kinds of experiences that you can provide. Not the kinds of things that you want from them, simplified. The kinds of things that you can do to them. Because then this dovetails into the three-minute game, which you'll play a lot when you're fucking your brains out. So, you write down the things that you can do to them. Right? And if you want to, you can write down some of the things that you like as well. But that's not entirely relevant here. So write down a list of the stuff that you're willing to offer them. Think of it like a menu, right? So she can, you know, take your menu and go, oh, wow, I didn't realize that you served bondage as an opening course. I didn't realize that you were into rope play or being a daddy. Again, write down things. There's two ways to do this. Write down things that you're willing to offer everybody on the menu as a way of getting started. Or write down everything that you love and then tell her that she can pick from the third thing, the fifth thing, or the seventh thing, right? So then she can make a choice that is both things that you already know that you can provide and things that she chooses from to enjoy, right? It's a very, very simple concept, menu. Solves a huge amount of problems, particularly with your first negotiations. Strongly advise that you use this. The original concept with this was called a services menu. And it was designed for a friend of mine to help her to connect with people at parties and kink events because she was very, very good at a bunch of different things, but she was terrible at talking about what she was good at. So a bunch of people would have this conversation with her and they would just dismiss her because she wasn't marketing herself very well. And what she basically did was she walked around, handed this menu to people and they were like, oh my God, I didn't realize that you were into this and this and this. And she's just like, yeah, I love that. Or, you know, that she could provide those services, right? And sometimes you don't even know what to ask for because you don't know what's available. So this kind of helps you to get over that initial hump. And then, once you've done this a couple of times, going back and forth with your partner, you can begin to open up about the really vulnerable things. And I urge you to be more vulnerable than you are at least a little bit, to the point where you're a little bit uncomfortable, right? That's how you expand your comfort zone. Everything that you want, everything that you deserve in a relationship is on the other side of that fear. There are two components to fear. 80% of fear comes from not knowing with absolute certainty that you are going to survive, that things are going to be okay, if that thing happens, that, that thing that you're afraid of, right? When you know with absolute certainty that you're going to be okay, that you're going to get through it, 80% of that fear disappears instantly. Now, the other 20% of that fear comes from uncertainty. It comes from not knowing exactly what might happen if that thing were to happen to you, that thing that you're afraid of. So once you know what is going to happen, even if it's something bad, that 20% of that fear that remains disappears completely too, right? Now, I want you to think about this. I know it's not this simple, but I want you to think about this as a thought exercise. Telling a total stranger at a kink event that you're really, really into something that you have difficulty sharing with other people. What's the worst thing they could possibly do? Hey guys, this guy's a freak. He's into this. 
I guarantee you, no one will really care. And if they do, they're horrible, broken, dysfunctional people. And you don't want them as friends. Because I've been in great kink scenes, and I've been in terrible kink scenes, and the difference, one of the differences, is that in a terrible kink scene, everyone's like, oh, ha, 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 that's terrible. He's like, oh, he's one of those feet people. I'm not saying that I am. I'm just saying that was an example that I've, I've seen where someone was publicly shamed for being into that. And that same person in a different scene was like, you know, welcomed and appreciated by the person they were talking to. Right? So that is the difference. So the menu gives you a simplified, streamlined way to offer an experience to someone. Again, an offer an experience that you provide to them and then that they give you the menu and they're willing to provide to you. So then you play, you have a good time. But what you are doing again is you are negotiating inclusively. You are negotiating the list. It's called a whitelist to use the technical term, but you're negotiating a list of things that are permitted. So all you do is you take the infinite possibilities of things that can occur between two people and you narrow them down to the handful of things that you are both okay to do. And that can come straight off the menu. It can come from that conversation. It can come from you being vulnerable and saying, hey, I'm really into being tied up and I would love for you to tie me up. And then they're like, well, I don't actually offer that. I don't know how to tie anybody, but here's my menu. Would you like to pick something that you like off the menu? And you go, great, fantastic. Now you're, now you're cooking with gas, to borrow the expression, right? As opposed to like cooking with electricity, which in earlier stoves used to be very slow and unreliable, right? Gas-fired stoves were seen as an upgrade. So now you're really going. You're, you've got things that you both like. Now, what that is, is you've you got a list of things that she wants, a list of things that you want to do, and that's your list of stuff that you do. And you don't do anything that isn't on that list. So if the list is choking, spanking, face slapping of a medium intensity, then that's what you do. However, you don't rip her clothes off. You don't hang her upside down from a tree. You don't... Oh, hanging upside down tonight, like a bat. Um, you don't do that. You don't do anything that's not on the list. Inclusive negotiation. The reason this is important is that it allows you to act with total certainty. This is extremely critical for maximizing the intensity of the experiences that you create, either as a dominant partner or a submissive partner. The roles can shift around a lot because, because of the way you're going to play the three-minute game. Basically, you change roles back and forth. There's no dominant partner in that interaction. There is a giver and a receiver. And then when you flip it around, there is a taker and a person who is allowing that to happen. For more details on the three-minute game, this is basically, this is the point where you would play that with this person. For more details on that, see the upcoming episode where I go into this in extremely nauseating, basically autistic detail. So you only do the things that are on your list of stuff to the intensity that's being discussed as well. So it's like face slapping, light. And again, light, medium, hard. And when you're doing this, get them to demonstrate what a light or a medium hard or a medium or a hard stroke is. Because again, definitions matter, right? If someone says, you know, choke me hard, and you're like, fantastic, I am an international level power lifter, then you've got a problem. Um, unless you, unless that's actually how Archie wants to be choked. But it's very important to understand that there are significant strength differences between women and men. And someone's light can be someone else's hard or someone else's too hard. So basically what I would advise you to do in your inclusive negotiation of your play is 
distill all of this class down into a handful of simple steps. Present them with your menu, pick two or three things off that menu, and play the three-minute game with those things back and forth. All right? And tell that person before you start each session of the three-minute game what it is you're asking for. Like, and just do one thing at a time. I just want you to spank me for three minutes. I just want you to fuck me for three minutes. I just want you to slap me for three minutes, right? Not continuously for three minutes, like space it out of it, right? Jesus. But pick one activity. Again, this is all more covered in more detail in the actual three-minute game episode, so go there. But that's basically what you're going to do. The menu is a really important concept here because it allows you to narrow down the possibilities of infinity to here's something I'd be willing to do with you. Let's do it. I want to do it to you. Right. Now, let me explain in detail, and I think we're definitely going to go over time, but it's a free class, and you guys can stop listening anytime you like, so that's also fine. If you guys need to head off, then please do, and I'll just keep going. Um, BDSM Contracts 2.5. Now, this is an evolution of a, of a class I've presented previously, which is recorded as a podcast episode. So these have a very particular structure, which I will outline in more detail in the show notes for this episode. But basically, they consist of a keystone statement, which is an aspirational... Sorry, keystone question, I should say. Keystone question. The, the, the version 2 was a keystone statement. Version 2.5 is a keystone question. So a keystone statement, um, deal breakers, preferences, and then a description of how the relationship will end. Um, that's basically the structure of this. And it's a very radical differentiation between this and a traditional BDSM contract. So if you haven't listened to the BDSM Contracts 2.0 episode or the expanded version that I'll release shortly, go and listen to that now and then come back to this episode. But a keystone question... Actually, I guess I can give you the summary here. A keystone question is an aspirational question that provokes internal reflection and forward movement towards a shared mutual goal. Okay? So the old version of this was something like honor thy master. If the girl is ever in doubt about what to do, she should always pick the option that honors her master the most. Right? It provides an aspirational target. Rather than exhaustive, interrelated, mutually contradictory lists of impossible to memorize bullshit rules, the way that things have been done for a billion years with the bees and contracts that are fucking useless. It's so short you can memorize the entire thing. And the memorization is important, right? Because it's something that's going to be present in the relationship at all times. It is something that is going to be naturally conditioned into both of you as a course of being in this relationship. So it needs to be short enough that she can memorize it and you can memorize it word for word, right? So it's important to take a slight step back here and talk about the importance of definitions and meanings. Now... These are very, very important to clarify before you get into building a contract, because the different words that you use might have different meanings to both of you, and they need to have the same meaning to both of you, right? So if you ask a room full of people what a dominant is, you'll get a different answer from each person. That's a really cool way to start a conversation. It's not a great way to have a contract or a relationship. Because what happens is someone will say to you, Oh, I thought you were the dominant. And I'm like, yeah, the dominant. That means I'm cruel and demanding and aggressive and sexually unrelenting. And then they're like, oh, no, when, 
when I meant dom- when I said dominant, what I meant was like soft and fluffy and cuddly and you know that kind of thing. It's like, well, okay, you had the same word, but you had different definitions and different meanings and different examples of that. So what this looks like is that you need to establish a common vocabulary, and I'm going to produce something like this. Again, it'll be in the resources folder, and I'll probably have to remember to tag it as part of this episode, or at least part of the BDSM Contracts 2.5 episode, but I haven't released yet. So don't stress if you can't find it, because it's not out yet. Well, by the time you're listening to this, it probably will be. But it's a common vocabulary. So definitions of common terms, submissive, dominant, relationship, you know, things that you both need to absolutely agree on, along with both the, the, the strict definitions of them, and then several meanings of them, and then several worked-through examples of those shared meanings. It's extremely important. It's one of the most important things I think I need to produce is a shared language for people to discuss the kinds of relationships they want to build. Because, again, so many people have relationship problems that are caused by getting in a relationship without a clear understanding of what it is they're actually getting into. Like, what are you agreeing to? Have you read the fine print? Great. Does the fine print mean the same thing to both of you? No. Then you have a problem. So you preemptively solve that problem by having shared definitions and meanings. They don't have to be the, the definitions and meanings that I give in this handout that I haven't produced yet, but they have to be the same. They have to be something that you both mutually agree on, right? So a dominant is this. An example of this is the dominant doing this in this situation for this reason. Right? And in this situation, the dominant, a dominant would do this for this reason. Right? It's like Jack Donovan talks about the difference between being a good man and being good at being a man. There is a difference between being a good dominant and being good at being dominant. And again, topic for a future episode. But common definitions, common explanations, common meanings are very, very important. And then you negotiate this contract. So the summary of the structure of this is very, very simple. Keystone question, deal breakers, preferences, how this relationship will end. Right? So, let me walk you through in very, very simple detail. The keystone question is something along the line. It's a question that guides the relation, the purpose of the, of the relationship, right? This is something that you'll both talk about because it's absolutely important that you absolutely do, right? It's super critical that you talk about the purpose of the relationship because if you, again, if you both have different ideas on this, and again, this is probably going to be in a template so I can simplify this whole process for everybody. But if you don't know what the purpose of the relationship is, then it means the purpose of the relationship is whatever the other person has decided what the purpose is. Their model of reality is more concrete and solid than than yours. They win by default and you lose. Right? So how you do this properly is you basically like write down and develop a shared purpose of the relationship. Now, let me use a simple example from my own life. Okay? So some time ago, several months ago now, actually multiple years ago now, um, I met someone and we agreed that the purpose of this relationship was to support each other, to love each other, and to build a family and a home together, right? That was the purpose of the relationship and to have great sex, right? Now, for various reasons, that relationship didn't work out. 
but it always had a shared purpose, right? And the reason that it didn't work out is because it became impossible for that purpose to be fulfilled. I, I failed that relationship, not the other person. But yeah, I'll talk about my extensive list of personal failures and how you can learn from my mistakes. And again, a different episode. I have a stack of note cards on my desk, which is about four inches high. And each one of those little index cards is a podcast episode that I've sketched out in detail. So I have a, a lot of content that I would like to produce. Common definitions, common examples, common purpose and intention of the relationship. Very important. Right? In fact, this is actually in the 2.5 BDSM contract. What is the purpose of this relationship? Now, it might have a different purpose for both of you, as in the purpose for the submissive is to provide comfort and security. The purpose for the dominant is to provide them with someone with excellent secretarial skills. It can have a different purpose for both of you, but it has to be a purpose that you both understand and that you're both consciously aware of and it is written down. Now, I was trying to find this before the class and I will try to put this in the show notes, but years ago I stumbled across something on FetLife that basically summarized how to be a good dominant in one sentence. And it was clear, internally consistent, written expectations. And I forget what was the description of how to be a good submissive was, but I've been looking for it and I'll pop it into the show notes when I find it. So, purpose of the relationship, keystone question. Now you can have both of these at the same time or you can just summarize this as a keystone question, right? So let's say the purpose of the relationship for me is to have an amazing, to, to build a life with somebody, right? And let's say, for simplicity's sake, the purpose of the relationship for her is to also build a life with somebody, right? And what that looks like for the two of us might be a family and a house and kids, right? So the purpose is there. Now, we don't need to have, in that case, a purpose and a keystone question because the keystone question would be something like, how can we treat each other in a way that moves us closer to our ideal relationship. And notice that it's not a statement, it's a question. It's like in any situation, you ask yourself that question and that question will guide you, right? And to translate it from the earlier statements, it might be something like, how can I honor thy master here and now in this moment? Or how in this situation can I honor thy master, right? Or basically, what would my master want? And if you don't know, then you ask them. But hopefully over time you learn their preferences the same way that they learn your preferences. And again, I'm working on something additional for that. Producing written templates takes me a lot longer than recorded content because it just takes me a lot longer. So, clear, written, shared definitions and meanings. Then, a BDSM contract 2.5. Keystone statement or a statement of purpose. Sorry, keystone question or a statement of purpose or both. And then you have deal breakers which are the things that will cause the relationship to end. So a lot of people have way too fucking many rules in their relationship contracts. And the contracts are multiple pages. I actually um, have several great examples of old style contracts in my resources folder. They've been carefully marked as superseded because they've been effectively replaced by this 2.5 version of a contract. To clarify, it's not the 2.5 version of that contract. It is an overhaul of the entire concept of BDSM contracts. 
at version 2.5. But a lot of those lists of rules were mutually contradictory, right? You will always comport yourself in a very calm and demure manner. However, you will also always be ruthlessly sexually expressive. Well, shit, like, pick a lane, dude, right? Which one is it? How does she know what to do in any situation? Honor thy master. Oh shit, okay, all of a sudden I know exactly what he wants me to do. Either he's told me, or he can be asked what it is, right? That is the aspirational question. The deal breakers are the tiny handful of things, and they should be one or two, three at most, that if they happen, they will cause the relationship to end or to ir irrevocably, right? Or to change shape from a DS relationship into something that's something other than a DS relationship. This concept of a, of a BDSM contract 2.5 is basically just a re relationship contract, and you can apply this to vanilla relationships as well. Also, I don't like the term vanilla. Personally, I think it's quite derogatory, but I have to use the words that people understand. I don't call them vanillas. I just think they're normal people, and we're normal people too. We're just doing different things. Some allowances have to be made for that, but not as many as you might think. So deal breakers are really simple. They're basically the things that happen, if they happen, will end the relationship. They're things that you can't forgive the other person from by design. So here are mine. The only thing that will absolutely cause me to end a relationship with someone, under any circumstances, is if that person knowingly consumes hard drugs from a list of what are very, very clearly defined hard drugs. And I define hard drugs as anything that is not uh, ecstasy or molly, anything that is not THC, anything that is not cigarettes, although I still wouldn't appreciate someone smoking. It's just, it's not like a reason to end the relationship on the spot. And nothing that's like hallucinogenic, so hallucinogenic ones are not something that I would classify as a hard drug, like psilocybin or whatever it's called, or magic mushrooms or anything like that. Those are all fine with me. I really don't care if my partner does that. However, if my partner does cocaine, even one time, they're gone. There's no possibility of appeal. There's no coming back from that. I will not tolerate that in my life. If they do meth one time, they're gone. All right? Unless, you know, it's like forced upon them or something in a weird way. But you understand what I mean, right? That's, that is the deal breaker for me. Right? And that's it. That's the rule, right? If she lies to me about something, I can forgive that, potentially. If she steals my car, I can potentially forgive that. The hard drugs thing is the only thing I can't forgive personally. Now, I'm not saying that you make this your hard rule, but you need to have one or two, at most, three deal breakers. Things that would cause you to end the relationship if they happened intentionally. Or, I guess, even unintentionally, depending on the circumstances, right? The reason for this is, if you don't do anything on that list, by definition, you can forgive or potentially forgive anything that's other than those things, right? And then you have a list of preferences. These are not rules. These are preferences. And the reason they're not rules is that you can't punish someone for a preference, right? The relationship that you have is based on voluntary consent. So this is a really important topic to talk about as well when it comes to BDSM contracts and the actual structuring of your relationship. 
it's that the basis of your authority is very important for you to think about. Because since slavery and the reality of slavery, like actual slavery, is illegal and obviously morally bad, but the basis of your authority in a modern first world democracy is voluntary consent. They choose to be your quote-unquote slave. We'll talk about terms of endearment in a moment because they come after you negotiate your contract. So the basis of your authority is that they want to be there. I've heard it said that the role of the top is to continually seduce consent from the bottom, and that's not inaccurate. At a certain point, though, you want a partner that wants to be in that kind of power structure with you because if all of a sudden they decide that they don't want to be, there's nothing that you can do to stop them from leaving it. Not anything legal or moral, anyway. Right? So the basis of your authority in a modern BDSM relationship is their consent. They consent to it. And as soon as they stop consenting, the relationship is effectively over. Now, what you want to do is clarify the circumstances under which the relationship could reasonably end. So, for example, if you break one of their deal breakers, the relationship ends. However, if you don't break a deal breaker, the relationship doesn't have any reason to immediately end. I would generally advocate for like a phase out of different things. We'll talk about that in a second. So deal breakers and then preferences. Preferences are things that if you do them, you get rewarded. And if you don't do them, you don't get punished. All right. So my preference. So in the past, I've seen a lot of people with contracts that have rules like you will 100% of the time make me a cup of tea first thing in the morning. And if you don't, you will be punished for being a bad slave. Fucking stupid. The design of these things. What happens if she needs to go pee? What if she has to take someone's kid to the school? What if she can't do that for whatever reason? Then you have to punish her, right? Make it a preference instead. I guarantee you it will take the amount of stress in your relationship down by easily 95%, right? Now, I'm going to have to add a separate section at the end of this episode on things like consensual non-consent and blanket consent, but I'll talk about those when I've had a chance to catch my breath and, uh, and write down a few more things. But the basis of your, of your relationship is voluntary consent. You want to be there. You can end it at any time. So this is why it's important to map out how the relationship will end. Now, the relationship will obviously end if either of you violate the deal breakers of the other person. And you have to write them down and agree to them, right? If she's a cocaine addict and she isn't willing to give up cocaine for me, then I can't have a relationship with And then whatever rules she has that are reasonable, right? Reasonable. Things that happen even one time will cause her to be unable to forgive you. And remember, you are binding yourself to this contract. Not in like a blood oath kind of way, but in a way that you are doing your best to live up to the expectations and the standards that both of you have agreed on, right? So if someone tries to get all fucking sneaky about it and put in as their deal breaker... You will never so much as speak to another girl. And that's something that you consent to. Obviously, that's an unrealistic expectation, right? This is where polyamory and monogamy kind of diverge because one of your deal breakers might be, and that's very reasonable, right? Monogamy is a perfectly reasonable choice. So is polyamory, provided that it's structured in a way that is basically the antithesis of how everybody structures modern polyamorous relationships. So that's another point, right? Is a deal breaker for you them fucking somebody else? Because if it is, and you consent to that, then you're agreeing to be bound by that deal breaker. You can't have that 
and still be in a relationship with them. Sorry, you can't break that and still be in a relationship with them. All right? So be very careful about the deal breakers. This is why there's so few of them. You should be able to remember them at all times. That's why you want two of them max. All right? So learn to be more forgiving. Because if it's not something that, if it happens even one time, it will cause you to be unable to forgive that person ever, then it's not a deal breaker. It's just a preference, right? I might have a preference that someone, like, not steal my money. Obviously, that doesn't need to be put down as an actual preference. I think that's pretty basic. But I'm not going to, like, end the relationship if they have to steal 100 bucks from me if it's for a good reason. I could forgive them for that, depending on the reason. That might not be you. You might not be able to forgive them for that. Right? Whatever your deal breakers are, they're yours, they're personal, and don't ever let anyone shame you for having them. Right? Just also understand that if they're hard to meet, you might be filtering out really amazing partners that you could have in your life if you were willing to be a bit more patient or a bit more forgiving. Now, to, to add to that, I'm not saying that if you're monogamous, allow your partner to be poly because I've, I don't think I've ever seen a situation in which that actually actually works. Also, if you have like different sexual orientations or something, or like your partner only wants you to sleep with a certain kind of person, then you know, agreeing to be bound by deal breakers like that is really difficult. It's it's very impractical. They have to be practical things. I think it's going to be fairly difficult for someone to accidentally do cocaine intentionally, right? So, I think that's reasonable for me to expect them or ask them to not do that. And they have a couple of deal breakers for me, which are personal to them, so I'm not going to show them here. But there are things I've agreed to, and there are things that I consent to, right? And then you want to describe how the relationship is going to end. So usually it's if someone breaks a deal breaker, or I, I like to establish a sense of continuity in a relationship, a sense of security. And that's very hard to do if there's things in there where you can leave at any time for any reason. Obviously, that is the case. But a lot of young women and young men have been very, very badly traumatized by their past and are basically just ending things out of the blue for no reason. You think everything's going great, you think you're doing a fantastic job, and then all of a sudden, for no reason that you can determine, boom, it's over. That is very, very cruel, I think. I think that if the relationship is not going well, usually the first leading indicator of this, the canary in the coal mine, is the absence of sex, physical sex. So that's an important thing to keep an eye on. Right? But I think it's, it's reasonable to have a conversation with someone over the course of a month or so and basically say, this is an issue that keeps happening. I need to find a solution where we both work together. Not where you fix this, but where we both work together to solve this problem because if we can't fix this, I can't remain in this relationship. That's reasonable. It's not, I'm ghosting you because you didn't reply to my text within 12 seconds. It's, I'm an adult. I understand that life is imperfect and you are imperfect and I am imperfect. And it's okay for you to, to need to take some time to change something or to need to work on yourself or for us to work together on something, right? Work together. I will be patient with you. I will give you some time. And you usually do this over the course of, I would say several weeks is reasonable. Right? I think that is reasonable. It shouldn't be a surprise. Particularly submissives think they are signaling this to their partner very, very, very clearly. 
when in fact they are actually not. Men are really dumb at reading between the lines sometimes, particularly when it's deliberately obfuscated. So that's how you design the end of the relationship, how the relationship will end before you ever need to worry about that. I know exactly how all of my relationships now and in the future will end because it's a standard boilerplate that I put in the comic. If they, if they violate a deal breaker or if we basically can't agree on the process that I described above where there's something that's the matter, it goes on for weeks, it never gets any better, we work together on it, we both actually try and then no progress can possibly be made because of some sort of external or environmental factor and then we can make a mutual decision or a reasonably mutual decision to end the relationship. Okay, so I'm going to talk about blanket consent as a separate um, thing, which I may tack on to the end of this episode. Um, but right before I go, I want to talk about terms of endearment. So once you have your contract, what you can do is you can summarize your contract essentially into a single word. And that word can be a symbol that represents the contract and the nature of your relationship, or it can also be a title or a term of endearment. Let's use a simple example. Let's imagine that there is a woman in your life that you love and she takes care of you and you're really good together and the sex is amazing, but you've noticed that over time she makes the decisions outside the bedroom and that feels good for her. It feels good for both of you. And you make the decision inside the bedroom, right? So you might like to capture the nature of that relationship using a particular term of endearment. Now, one of the things I've done in the past is come up with like unique words. So the idea that I came up with for describing a slave girl as a diamond was because there was a girl in my past that I used to call that, right? And I haven't called anybody that since, but it's an example that I use, right? It reflected, it, it represented a very precise, mutually understood concept of what our relationship was like. She was raw material to be shaped by an expert person into something beautiful. That was the nature of our relationship, right? And she had a title for me, something that she would call me, right? So I encourage you, once you are settled into your BDSM contract 2.5, but um, terms of endearment can become very powerful symbols that represent the contract that represents the relationship that you have. So you have done something by the end of this process. So basically what you'll have at the end of this process is at the, at the end of phase one, you will be independent because you'll be working on those things. You will be independent. You will be physically, financially, sexually, and emotionally independent. You will have met all the benchmarks I outlined in the previous episode of this series, right? By the end of section two of this class, you will have a more than one sentence written description of your ideal partner, right? Mine is about three paragraphs, but don't be intimidated by the length. Whatever you get on paper is what matters, okay? If it's not on paper, it's not real. Then you look at that every day. And I guess I can talk about that in a bit more detail when I go into it in the next episode in this series. But basically, that's what you're looking for. You have a target criteria that you need your partner to meet because I'm looking for a partner that is not a man. Um, you know, I want to have children and there's just certain machinery that's required for that. So 
when you're looking for a partner and you're attracting people as much as you can and then filtering out the people that are incompatible with you with kindness and compassion, not with cruelty, you're doing so based on the criteria that you have that are clear and that are designed to, to move you towards having an ideal partner, someone who's mentally and physically healthy, someone who loves themselves and who is happy to be a man or a woman, someone who enjoys that dichotomy of that sexual chemistry between the two of you. And ideally, someone that, that shares some, not all, of a common interest with you, right? I love the outdoors. I also occasionally enjoy watching movies. So I'm very flexible when it comes to potential partners. But there are different things that I would be more drawn to do if, if I'm dating a girl that, that's really into hiking. We're going to go hiking more often. And she's going to see that side of me a lot more often than someone who is more introverted who hates hiking in the outdoors, doesn't like the sun, hates bugs, you know, doesn't really enjoy swimming, but enjoys sort of cooking instead, right? Maximizing your attractiveness is a controversial topic, and that's okay. I don't mind being controversial so long as you understand that I'm not going out of my way to be controversial. I'm just telling you the truth, right? I want you to have an amazing relationship because I love all of you. I really genuinely do. I think that you deserve to have the kinds of experiences that I have been fortunate enough to have with the amazing people that I've met and the amazing people that I haven't met yet, right? And all I wanted to do with this class was take everything that I've learned from my own personal experiences and form it into a rough process so that you can have the same things that you deserve, an amazing, super intense, kinky relationship. Now, Episode three of this four-part series will talk about what you are actually going to do in that relationship together. Because this contract, you'll notice, doesn't contain a lot of information about what you're actually going to do. Like, who's going to make who cups of tea? Who's going to suck whose dick? Right? Like, that comes later. Right? This is the foundation for a strong, sustainable relationship. Now, a couple of core points that I want to loop back through before I wrap things up. So... It's very important. I can't emphasize this enough. Independence is very important, right? That's the prerequisite here, right? Then you want to basically get a very clear written down vision. If you're struggling with this, email me, right? I will always help you with this, always. I know it's very confronting. I, I struggle with it myself for many, many, many years, like literally a decade plus, and it's like, you, know, you try to think about what you want to do with your life and nothing comes. And it's depressing as fuck, right? It's overwhelming. It's, it's crippling for a lot of people. And they just bounce around from dead-end job to dead-end job because they can't form a vision of what their ideal future is like. So I had to develop these techniques, which I haven't explained particularly well today, to be honest. I'm going to put together a separate episode on that specific topic where I go into more detail and I, I explain it in a much better way. But it's very important. The attributes method, the inversion technique, the ideal or the worst day. These will give you everything you need to have a clear written description of what you want your ideal relationship life to look like. How often do we have sex? Where do we have sex? What kind of sex do we have? Do we hold hands? Do we cuddle? Is there a physical affection between us? Or is that not really a part of our relationship? Are they really into this fetish that I'm really into or not really? Does, that, does it matter to me if, if they're not? All of those things, binary questions, write those things down. That will give you a clear vision of the ideal partner that you have. Then put yourself in places. I strongly advise against the kink scene generally. 
If you are in Europe, you already know which kink scenes are well-run and well-managed and well-organized, and you might find compatible partners there. But if you're in America or Australia, I've yet to hear from anyone that I know in America, and that's a lot of people, of the kinds of experiences being created where people are really able to bond and connect in a very meaningful way, particularly in the hypno-kink community. It basically doesn't happen. A lot of the organizing of these events is very amateurish. They're doing the best with what they've got, but... Yeah, it's not great. So I would strongly advise you to actually look for compatible partners outside of the kink scene because as soon as you limit yourself to just the kink scene, you are taking on board a lot of baggage that can be very hard to overcome. Particularly things like a huge degree of competition for available female submissives. If you happen to be heterosexual, which is basically everybody, then you're competing for one of the tiny handful of of women that that do identify as kinky, you will have a much better time, a much easier time, and be able to find someone who is much healthier mentally and physically if you generally concentrate your efforts outside of the kink scene. Basically, what you're looking for is a mentally and physically healthy person who you are physically and sexually and emotionally attracted to that you can then have really rough sex with and be sexually dominant in the bedroom without needing to be super dominant outside the bedroom. And I'll talk about some of the pitfalls and drawbacks of doing that in episode four of this series. And then you do mini contracts where you basically play the three-minute game. um, You play the getting to know game. I'm going to have to produce separate episodes on these, aren't I? I probably am. That's okay. It's also useful stuff. And then you build a great rapport. You have some scenes with somebody. You work your way through that timeline. And then after about six to eight months... You have a formal contract, which looks like a BDSM contract 2.0. You can, uh, sorry, BDSM contract 2.5. You can have a loose one of those earlier on, right? A lot of it's basic human decency, just codified in written form. However, I would strongly advise against committing yourself to a DS relationship with someone before the six-month mark. Because that gives you a chance to figure out whether you're compatible outside of just the DS components, right? It's very easy to get caught up in thinking, oh, he's the perfect dom for me. And I'm like, yeah, but does he want the same things in life? Is he at the same stage in his life? Can he offer you the things that you really need? Can you offer to him the things that he really needs? So, And that's basically how you design the relationship. Now, in the next part of this four-part series, we'll talk about what you actually do in that relationship. Specifically, how to maximize the intensity of the activities and experiences that you enjoy, but also like how to handle conflicts. How, oh, one of my favorite topics, I'm really excited to teach this one, um, is how to listen to your partner after they get home from work. Right? It's a really, really important topic that basically no one teaches. right? Because pretty much everyone works these days, So they're going to come home from work and they're going to need something from you. You won't know what that is, but it'll be very specific. Basically, what they need you to do is listen to them for 10 or 15 minutes until they can vent about that bitch in reception who keeps getting the orders wrong or about this patient or this consultant or this client or this colleague of theirs or whatever it is. And there's a very structured way that I've come up with that is absolutely optimized for maintaining the health of that relationship. I can't wait to teach that to you. I hate to sound like a cock tease where it's like, oh, all the cool stuff's in the next episode. But I think I was saying the same thing about all the cool stuff being in the next episode in the last episode. So you're going to have to forgive me. I'm not, I'm not a professional presenter. I don't have a polished 
brand. I don't have a team of people behind me. All I have are things that I've built that I want to share with you so that you can suffer less than you would otherwise have. So that you can build amazing relationships and have great connections and have super, super, super intense kink relationships. One of the things I'm really excited to talk about next episode, next week on whatever this channel is, is how I basically took a relationship and then built it from scratch by inverting the Duluth model, which is um, also known as the wheel of control, I think, or the wheel of power, right? You take everything that everyone says is wildly abusive. You build a strong foundation of trust, and then you do all of the things that the two of you want to do together. And you create the kind of intense relationship that is real and meaningful and very, very dominant. And that most girls dream about being in. Right? Not everybody, but you've probably been to an event where you've seen someone that's just doing something that's at the next level. And you want that. And that's what I'm trying to teach you how to have that intensity. A strong foundation, choosing the right partner. Now, I think it's also important here to, to talk very briefly about how it's important not to settle, right? There is a very wise woman. Um, she's very wise in, in areas that I'm not particularly wise in. And I really value and appreciate her advice. And there was something that she said to me, which seems simple, but it was very profound to me. She said, it's better to be alone than with a person that you're just not right for. And to all of my guys out there, and girls, it's important not to compromise fundamental elements of your personality or your standards. Usually for guys, they compromise on their standards. Just so that you're not alone, right? The right person for you is out there. You will find them. If you're struggling, get in touch and I can help you tweak your game or figure out what it is that you need to do differently. But you will find the right person. The best is yet to come. And what I want for you is amazing relationships. But what I want to explain to you is that you can build a super intense DS relationship. It's not that hard, right? You have to be an independent person first, or at least mostly independent, right? It really does help to be fully independent, but if you're not there yet, I get it. It's hard. It's a, it's a high barrier, right? It's not impossible, and it's not as difficult as you think it is, but it can seem very difficult. Right, but you, you get your independence, you, you choose the right person, you begin the relationship in the right way, and then you're patient with each other when you have fights. We'll talk about that in the next episode. When you disagree on things, right, how you handle indiscretions and mistakes, how you handle malignancy in the relationship when someone is trying to hurt you. right? These are simple skills that you can learn. They are simple and extremely effective. I have been in a lot of relationships, and I guess since the class is sort of technically over now, I can waffle on a bit more about the background material, but I have been in every kind of relationship except legally married. Well, maybe there's a couple that I don't know about, but like a couple different types of relationships, but I, I can think of a lot of different kinds of relationships. I've had boyfriends, I, no, I've had boyfriends, I've been a boyfriend, I've had a girlfriend, I've had long-term partners, I've had multiple partners at once, I've had multiple partners living in the same house together at once, which is not necessarily as ideal as it might sound on paper. And what I'm trying to do with this class is take all of the pain and the suffering and the mistakes that I've made and distill this enormous body of material down into a very, very simple process. All you have to do 
has become independent, right? Create a clear vision of your ideal partner and what their ideal partner would look like. And then create the relationship in a way that allows both of you to be deeply vulnerable while also feeling completely safe to be yourselves because you don't need the other person to like you. You don't have to have them. You're not compromising on your standards. And then you basically just form little mini contracts. You play the three minute game. You know, you play, you laugh, you have fun, you fall in love, you get married, you have a bunch of kids, or you don't, that's fine too. You don't get married. Marriage is kind of a, well, I don't know, it's a complicated topic for a lot of people, but I think if you love somebody, you don't need a piece of paper to prove that. And if you're willing to commit your life to somebody, then you also don't need a piece of paper to prove that. But I understand that there's legal reasons why it's it's useful. You know, and you meet somebody, you have an amazing life with them. You build something together that is interdependent, that is more than either one of you could create by themselves. That's the point of all of this. To build beautiful relationships. I want to one day see you at a kink event or walking down the street, holding hands with someone that you adore, and to just see that energy between the two of you, right? Because every single person that you walk past when you're like that is inspired by you. And I'm going to talk a lot about this in the next episode because I think it's important to be an inspiration to people. And I, I generally enjoy quite intense relationships. And there are a lot of people that think that's too intense. And I like to prove to people that it's okay to be yourself. It's okay to be intense if that's what you want, if that's what you can handle. I've had degrees of control over people offered to me and exercised over others that most people would describe as impossible, and yet it was an average day for me. And I want you to have that too. Not because you have to have heaps of control over someone in order to have a great relationship, but because I want you to have the freedom to enjoy that if that's what you choose together. If you're living your life according to what you think the quote-unquote kink community would, would think about your relationship, then you are making a huge mistake because those people do not care about you the way that you should love yourself, the way that your partner will care about you, right? Don't live your life according to the standards of other people that are imposed upon you through tyranny and fear, right? Choose the relationship that you want that is in your genuine highest good. And I kind of got to tack this on because I missed it earlier, but... The goal of the relationship in the BDSM contract 2.0 that guides the whole relationship, sorry, 2.5, still getting used to that, uh, is, is to act in the highest good of both individuals and the relationship. Right? That's the point of all of this. I'm probably going to add to this topic with extra episodes, create more content on this. Sometimes it's hard to get everything in a first pass and it's easier to like teach multiple classes on this and then maybe come back and revisit the topic in a couple of months because it's something that basically affects everybody. So I think it's worth putting a bit more of my time into this. But that is all for tonight, folks. So thank you everyone that stuck around until the end of this. I really appreciate your support. I see you and it matters to me. So thank you for everything, and I look forward to teaching you again soon.